Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. We're talking business now with Elise Dickerson, the co-founder and CEO of biotech company Eosera, Inc. Eosera develops products that address underserved healthcare needs. In this episode of Talking Business Now, Elise talks with us about her entrepreneurial journey and working as a female CEO in the biotech industry. Welcome, Elise. Thank you. Great to be here. Very interesting story. Tell us a little bit about Eosera. Why did you start the company and what does the company do? So my co-founder and I, Joe Griffin, we both spent about 15 years at a large pharmaceutical company. And I could say we both kind of grew up there. I was on the commercial side of the business and he was always on the R&D side of the business. And we were both laid off right about the same time in early 2015 and put our heads together and thought, you know what? We can start our own business. So first started with, we had several product ideas, but we wanted to let the market tell us what the biggest need was and then try to fill it. Mm -hmm. So we spent the first several months talking to doctors. Any, Any doctor that would take a lunch, dinner, coffee with us, we gladly shared that meal with them and asked them, you know, about their patients and about problems they see in their practice and remedies that they would like to see over the counter. So good old-fashioned networking. Exactly, exactly. And it really let us get to the heart of what was uh, plaguing the doctors and, and what they needed to really make the lives of their patients better. And so oddly enough, earwax impaction was a condition that pretty much every doctor we talked to said was a problem. So we talked to pediatricians, (laughs) yes, pediatricians, geriatricians, just regular GPs, audiologists. They all said millions and millions of people were coming into their practices each year to have earwax removed. And that's exactly what we did. And um, how how could we potentially solve this? So we put our heads together. We spent about nine months in a lab here in Fort Worth, Texas, came out of the lab nine months later with a product that would dissolve your wax in about 15 minutes. And this was a real game changer for the category because the market leader in the category had a product that was designed in the 1960s and it was designed to soften wax over time. So really you're supposed to use it twice a day for about four days and then maybe the wax in your ear will be soft enough that you could pull it out. We wanted a product that would quickly dissolve the wax and rinse it clean. All in one sitting. All in one sitting, exactly. So that was the first product that we developed. We had many good fortunes along the way. There was a business pitch competition uh, right about that time that uh, had a prize of $50,000. And I looked at Joe and I said, I'm going to win that. And uh, we needed $50,000 to run a human clinical trial. And so I set my eyes on that prize and we got through the first round and through the second round. And then the final night of the pitch in front of a panel of judges and a big audience, and we indeed won. And that set us then on a course that we could actually start a company, uh, run a clinical trial, and eventually bring the first product to market. Which would have been the Earwax. What is the name of that product? Earwax MD. 
Oh, so very, very simple name, Earwax MD. Very simple name, yes. Get straight to the point. And so that launched in 2017. And then fast forward to today, 2020, we have eight products, all in the ear care category. And we're in over 13,000 stores nationwide. So then you don't have to have a prescription in order to get it. If you're in 13,000 stores nationwide, is this an over-the-counter kind of product? Exactly. All of our products right now are over-the-counter. So that means patients can self-diagnose and walk up to the shelf at their local CVS pharmacy and pick it up and take it home and use it. Besides the layoff, what led you to take that entrepreneurial leap? A lot of people get laid off and they don't start their own companies. They go look for another job. <laughs> Why did you think entrepreneurship was the, the path for you? So a couple reasons. First, I had been donating my time to some local startups over the previous five years. And what I realized during that process is I hadn't given myself enough credit of how much I actually knew about industry and about business and about healthcare. And so I'm coaching these startup companies that are getting funded and launching products and looking at those founders and thinking, oh my gosh, I know so much more than them because of the training I've had in this you know, big corporate mm -hmm. environment, I never gave myself that credit. I think I could potentially do this, obviously not alone, but with the help of other people. So that was the first thing. The second thing is in my final five years, I was helping evaluate technologies that the, the big pharmaceutical companies would buy. As companies get bigger, it becomes more difficult to innovate. And it becomes easier to just go buy small companies or buy technology that small companies have already innovated. Mm -hmm. And so I was evaluating these technologies, evaluating the teams that had created these technologies. And again, it reinforced this idea that, wow, you know, they're, they're nothing exceptional. They're smart people and they're driven people, but maybe I could do this. Mm -hmm. So when I was kicked out of the comfort of, you know, the corporate nest with all the benefits and the payroll, you know, the, the paycheck and all of that, it was my moment to take the chance. And I knew I could always go back and get another job at a big company, but I knew I probably would never have the opportunity to take the risk because I had already been sort of kicked out of the nest. Right, right. And before you got too comfortable again, it's like, I, I need to try this right now. Exactly. And I had a great business partner, friend, colleague, previous colleague that had been laid off, and I knew together that we could do it. You talked about the clinical trials, and so often in companies, there's a startup period, but if you're doing things right, you can get cash coming in pretty quickly, especially you know in certain industries, but in industry like yours, where you can't just immediately take your product to market. And you have to have the cash to do sometimes, oftentimes expensive testing. What would you say to entrepreneurs who find themselves with an idea, but in, the in an industry where they're not going to be able to see a financial return anytime soon? It might be a matter of years, for example, mm -hmm. to, go, to get product to market. What would you tell them about weathering that period? What tips do you have for them? So we we took a very transparent approach with investors that we approached and investors that we ended up taking money from. We laid out a realistic timeline 
that did not overpromise. I think that's a big mistake that entrepreneurs get themselves into is they put these aggressive timelines thinking that's what investors want to see when in actuality they just want to see you know what is realistic and then if you can beat that that's great so being transparent also we had proof of concept before we even went to raise money and so by proof of concept i mean in the lab not in humans but in the lab i was able to show time and time again that this product worked. And that gave a level of confidence to investors to say, okay, it may take her five years to get a product to market, but she's got pretty compelling data that this actually works. You recently participated in a magazine panel where the topic was the art of risk-taking. We've talked about that a little bit. Yes, granted, you were you were kicked out of the company that you were in. You were in LA, so it was like, you didn't necessarily say, make that decision to walk away, but you did make the decision not to go back to it. Risk-taking there, risk-taking in, uh, you know, deciding to pursue something that was not going to have an immediate financial return. And so you shared your insights on this, on blazing your own path. Do you have a history throughout your life of blazing your own path? Are you, was this your first adventure, so to speak, into uh, cutting the traditional strings or, or have you been that kind of that way your whole life? So I think it, it it's definitely been a pattern through my life. And um, I've spent quite a bit of time uh, thinking about how I got here. As a child, I was the ultimate tomboy. I was the pigtailed girl on the soccer field with, you know, all the boys uh, playing, playing soccer every day. And at that age, this is elementary school, I did not see a difference between boys and girls. The difference was purely cosmetic to me. And so I always had, through sports, I had a level of confidence that developed over time. And so I wasn't afraid to be in a room with all men, which would eventually become part of my life in upper management and these big companies. I was often the only woman in a room. So there was so there was that foundation, and then there was also, I was diagnosed in third grade with dyslexia, but between first grade and third grade, they continually told me and my parents that I was just a you know, below average student and probably shouldn't expect too much from me in my academic career going forward. And so I, I had this seed planted at a very young age that the external world was going to tell me what they thought I was going to accomplish, but somehow, some way, by the grace of God, I had this internal drive that started very, very young, and I was going to prove them wrong. And so part of it's sort of the combination of those two things, I think, throughout my life, they, they've continued to sort of pop back up, this continual drive to achieve more than maybe is expected of me. And then this being able to sort of step through the fear of being either the first one or the only one uh, to take on a challenge. How has all of that applied to your role as a woman CEO in biotech? And I ask that because although women are breaking through many boundaries, there really are no, technically, there are no industries that are off limits to women anymore. But there are some industries where it is still a challenge. And biotech is one of them. So talk to us about being a female CEO in biotech, uh, what the challenges have been, how you've 
manage to get through that, anyone who's been a mentor, so that others who are listening to today can can perhaps emulate some of what you've been able to do? So I will say I have not gotten here alone. And I've had so many amazing men and women come in and out of my life throughout my childhood and career to help develop me and mentor me. And you know, right now I have a mentor that she meets with me every single week. She's uh, retired from her contract manufacturing company. Uh, she sold it and is retired, but I, you know, I learned something from her literally every single week about you know things she did in her business to grow her business. And you can imagine this was back in the 80s and 90s when women really didn't exist at the mm-hmm. top. And so what I would say now is being the founder and CEO of a company, I am able to curate the environment around me, which is a dramatic difference from uh, being inside a large pharmaceutical company and having no control over really the the environment. And so where I would be the only woman in the room at a lot of meetings, historically, now that I'm the CEO, I mean, most of my team is women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to develop the young women and, and bring out their you know, talents and build their confidence to as, you know, hopefully they'll be running a company one day. But surrounding yourself, yeah. You're, yeah, you're able to open those doors for other women now that you were finally able to walk through yourself. Absolutely. I take it very, very seriously because I know I haven't gotten here by myself. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs that I talk to get paralyzed because they're striving for perfection. They can get their product to a certain level or they can gather maybe 60 or 70 percent of the information that they think they need, but they're still afraid to make a move until they get to the other 30 or 40 percent. And I I do understand that in the industry that you're in, in biotech, you have to meet certain standards and, and levels of testing before you can go to market. And so, so that's something that you guys are constantly dealing with. Talk to us about success and perfection and the balance between the two. So as an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to know that nothing is going to go as planned. Right. And that's pretty much going to happen every single day. You can plan to a certain point, but then you just have to start taking the steps forward and being ready to pivot and make decisions and make changes really in the blink of an eye. And so that's part of what I love about entrepreneurship is it's always a a new challenge, unpredictable challenge, but if you embrace it, it can actually be really fun. Mm -hmm. So a perfect example, when we first started out and launched our first product, Earwax MD, we were trying to find a contract manufacturer. We were trying to finalize packaging But I decided to take a meeting with retailers to see, just sort of judge the market and see if they were going to be willing to take this product on their shelves. So I got a meeting with the buyer at CVS, and I really thought it was a long shot that they would take the product. But if they did take the product, I thought it would be in a very small, select number of stores. So I pitched the product, showed the buyer the opportunity that I saw within ear care to really grow the ear care category and change the dynamics. And he agreed. Hmm. And he said, I said, well, how about you take it in 2,000 stores? And he said, no, I think I want it in all 8,000 stores. Wow. And so it was a moment of, 
pure joy, but also pure terror because I'm thinking, oh my God, we don't have packaging. We don't have the contract manufacturer, you know, completely locked down. How am I going to do this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if I had waited until I had everything perfectly lined up and perfectly ready to go, the buyer probably would not have taken the meeting with me. Exactly. You know, so it was sort of an, yeah, you just kind of have to ebb and flow and take a few risks. And so I remember walking out of the CPS headquarters, calling Joe and saying, well, I have good news and I have bad news. <laughs> and I said, which do you want first? And so I told him the good news first. Well, CVS wants our product in 8,000 stores. And here's the bad news. They need it in three months. So let's talk about that because you're right. That feeling of pure terror. I've talked to other entrepreneurs who've had the same situation where they thought they were going to start small and, you know, introduce things incrementally and it just explodes (laughs) on them. And that is a good problem to have, but it's also a problem that can kill your business from the beginning. What did you do in order to meet that contract? So a couple things. One was I had to really sit down and do the financial analysis because you are exactly right. So many small businesses or startup businesses go out of business because they run out mm-hmm. of money. And I I did not want that to happen. So I sat down, did the financial analysis, figured out exactly how much cash I was going to have to have in order to make this happen. Because the other dirty little secret within retail is that when you're a new vendor with a retailer, they hold your money and they hold your money for about 180 days. So that means you're shipping product, you're shipping, you know, hundreds and thousands of units of product and they are not paying you for that product. Mm -hmm. So about six months later. Exactly. Yeah, six months later. So what I did is I went to the investors and I was, you know, transparent with them that this is how much cash we're going to have to have on hand to make this happen. It actually ended up being more than I thought. But I had the, you know, blessing of the investors. We were going to essentially bleed down a lot of the cash to be able to ship all the product. And then six months later, we would start seeing the, the revenue come in. So a lot of that came down to planning. And I'll tell you, we have turned other large drug retailers down because financially, we couldn't bear the burden of them not paying us. It is hard for business owners, especially new ones, to say no to potential customers. It sounds like you, with your planning, with your emphasis on the financial side of things, in addition to having a good product, and also just being transparent. It's exactly right. And some of the best advice I got when I started this business was, with every update you send to your investors, ask for their help. Yeah. doesn't matter how big or how small. And so uh, when we first started, I would send monthly updates to the investors. And in every single email to them, I would say, here's how you can help. And inevitably, one or two of them would come forward with a resource or with knowledge that could help us through the situation. And it might have been something as small as like helping us look at a contract to something as big as, you know, we want to start our own manufacturing plant, help us. You know, having it also ties to that wisdom of there's good money and there's bad money. 
And don't be afraid to turn down money if you feel like that investor is not aligned with your values and your vision, because they can take a company down. Yeah, it sounds like there's a couple of things going on there. One is that you're developing a two-way trust. They are learning that you are going to be transparent, and people like to help. So by helping, they are starting to feel buy-in and ownership more than just the dollars. You know, they start to have an emotional connection to the company as well. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yes. Again, entrepreneurs, I think, are a breed of people who are do-it-yourselfers and very independent, but it's for so many reasons. As we've discussed today, it's very important to bring people along and to have that transparency and to not be afraid to ask for help. As you said, EOSERA is committed to conscious capitalism. So I want to hear what you mean by conscious capitalism and how it manifests itself at EOSERA. When we talk about conscious capitalism, we mean having some higher purpose over just making money. And this was really brought to my attention while I was still working in the big corporate environment. And I, myself, and I know a lot of my colleagues, felt like we were just a number and that we were completely disposable as employees and our only value was making money for the company. And so I felt like there had to be a better way to do business. And so started studying conscious capitalism and this idea that there's there's something more important than the money. And if you focus on that one thing, the money will follow. So for us with Eosera, we decided people were going to be our number one priority. And when I say people, I mean all people, all stakeholders within our universe. So it's our investors. It's our employees. It's our customers, it's our vendors, pretty much anyone that we touch, we we put the people and their well-being at the center of every decision we make. If it comes down to a tough decision, whether you know we're going to financially benefit or we're going to do someone wrong or put another small business at risk because we want to profit from, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know exactly a scenario, but we decided we will put people at the at the center of every decision we make. And fast forward five years, we've seen the difference it can make. Give me an example of a question you might ask yourself, you know, a decision that you're trying to make and the type of question that you would ask yourself to put people first. So, for example, we are passionate about having a positive work environment. And what we have had to make difficult decisions in terms of the people that we hire and the people that we decide to let go. For the health and well-being of our workforce, we do not accept toxic behavior. And anyone that's listening to this knows what I'm talking about. Within corporations around the world, there's toxic behavior. And it just takes one person to bring that negative energy into the office building and then it permeates, and it and it really sucks the life out of the company. As a leader, you have to make the really tough decision: Do I let that person go because of the behavior, even though they have great work, and I, you know, I love their work product, but their behavior is to the detriment of the rest of my workforce. And so we've had to make those decisions, and it is painful because I do care so much about people. It is personally painful um, to have to say goodbye to people that don't fit with the culture that we're trying to create. But again, it's better when you stop and weigh the question, what is going to be best for everybody? That's the right decision. 
you are a fairly new company. You've already, by your own definition, you have already achieved so much success, but there's so much more, so much more potential. Where do you see EOSERA going? What's your future look like? So we, our first goal was to launch an earwax product. Then our second goal was to max out the ear care category and really bring new innovative products that expanded what consumers could um, historically find within ear care. And we've done that now. We have products for pain and itch and daily hygiene of your ears. Our next goal is to look at the nasal category because we feel like within uh, nasal, there are a lot of unmet needs that we could potentially address. That's another important point. You're expanding, but you're not straying too far from your core. Yeah, and that was another advice that I got early on, even before we raised capital, was do one thing really well and then move to the next thing. And don't try to have you know, three balls in the air when you haven't even succeeded with mm-hmm. one. And so we've been really true to that model. We've launched one product at a time and one category at a time, and then then we branch to the next. You mentioned that you have these in, what was it, 1,300 locations throughout the country? And, yes. and are they available on your website? Okay, yes. and, and your website is? Yes. EarCareMD.com. EarCareMD.com. Go out there and you can take a look at the products. And just so happy that you came on the show to share your entrepreneurial story. Some great tips for our listeners today. Thank you so much, Elise, and best of luck to you. Thank you. It's a true pleasure. And I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to visit the Talking Business Now website at TalkingBusinessNow.com for access to all my podcasts and to sign up for the weekly Talking Business Now newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.